Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Chatterjee, joined again by my co-host, Brianne. Brianne, how's everything going? Hey, Neil. Everything's great. Great to be here again. We are joined here by a man who really needs no introduction, Neil, but I will let you introduce him anyways. Yeah, very uh, special guest this week on the podcast, former Congressman Greg Walden, who represented the second district of Oregon in the U.S. House of Representatives, had a distinguished career in which he served as chairman of the House Committee on Energy and Commerce, was also chair of the National Republican Congressional Committee, and was just an all-in-all great leader and individual. Tremendous service to the country. Thank you, Congressman Walden, for joining us here on the Plugged In Podcast. Well, Neil Brand, it's great to be with both of you. Thanks for letting me be on the show. Appreciate what you do out there to get the word out about energy and uh, what it means to America and to Americans and all the other topics you cover. And thanks for your service uh, over the years as well. We appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you and I appreciate that uh, you were hard on me, but not too hard on me. Maybe we can start there. You know, this is a, an energy and electricity focused podcast. And I want to lead off by saying, you know, when you were chairman, I was really impressed that your policy was really to, to put the consumer first. That's right. In policy matters. And I guess if you could kind of expound on that for our listeners and talk about how that consumer focus really translates to the energy sector and specifically with uh, with electricity. Well, when you think about putting the consumer first, it really is about affordability of energy. It is about creating markets that work. It is about injecting innovation into the system so that you have resiliency, so that you have advanced opportunity. That all drives a strong economy and an affordable family budget. And, and those things really matter to people. And it's where America needs to be. And it's, it's really, I think I got to live through a very exciting time in the energy space over the 22 years I was in Congress and tried to help shape that policy that would be very beneficial toward the consumer. I come from the Northwest, as you mentioned, here in Oregon. And so we've always been on the forefront of renewable energy. If you think about our amazing hydroelectric system that was started really under FDR back in the 1930s and built out through the 70s and, and probably maybe into the early 80s. But that's not all. We have a pretty big geothermal solar and wind component to that. We also, though, have relied on coal and natural gas and nuclear. So we've kind of had it all here. And, and so it gave me a good perspective about how important it is to have a good electricity supply mix and to have competition, if you can get it in the markets, and to make sure that you've got a, a grid that can handle it all as well. You mentioned competition. I mean, do you think that increasing competition in the electricity sector will be necessary to kind of helping to further these consumer developments to unlock the development of low-cost domestic and what is increasingly renewable resources, both on the uh, supply and demand side? Well, yes. And and, and I would say, I, I remember when Judge Green broke up AT&T, prior to that, you sort of had one monopoly phone system, and it didn't give you much innovation compared to what we have today. And so I think when, when you look at, again, putting the consumer first, are consumers better off with a competitive, properly regulated, but competitive market? 
uh, or are they better off with with sort of a stodgy monopoly where nobody's getting pressured to be any better? And and I think they're better off when you've got some smart competition engaged and taking advantage of new technologies. Look, I, I think in the world of blockchain and the world of AI and, and all the things we're, we're all learning about and pushing forward on, we're going to find there are much better ways to manage those electrons on the grid than we see today. And when you think about your battery operated vehicle, maybe the, the, what powers your house in a winter storm when the when the lines are down, you know, that's a different way to look at the electric grid and the use of electrons. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity out there and we shouldn't shy away from it. We've got to be smart. We have to have smart regulation in this space, but competition's better than monopoly nearly every single time. You're a Republican and you mentioned breaking up the telecom monopolies. Republicans love it. Conservatives love it when innovative new technologies come in and disrupt the existing paradigm. We love it when Uber comes in and breaks up the taxi cab monopolies. You mentioned telecom. For some reason, when it comes to electricity, though, we're resistant. What what advice do you have for Republicans and how can we get more conservatives to embrace competition in the electricity space specifically? Well, I know there are some, some leading thinkers out there trying to put together coalitions to do exactly that. Um, and and I, I encourage them because I, I think it's really important work. And, and I think Republicans, frankly, all Americans should embrace a, a competitive marketplace. My gosh, it's what you think, Neil, about what we do to go save two cents a gallon on gas. You'll drive another five miles you know, because you know exactly where that station is that has the lowest price fuel, especially in these days. And we've really never thought about that as consumers in the electricity space, because we've not had that opportunity. You, know, you don't get to shop around really for your electrons. It's just whatever, whoever's connected to your house provides you and you, you're far removed from it. And I suppose in, in some cases, people go, well, that's okay. I don't want to worry about it. I don't want to have to make choices. Okay, you can design a system where you just keep doing whatever you want to do. But I think there are other market opportunities that could exist if consumers were given those choices. And those new markets would generate new ideas and new innovation that will allow us to more efficiently move electrons around and probably reduce price. I always think when you've got a, a truly properly regulated competitive marketplace. Consumers win because you get innovation and lower costs. Very seldom does it get turned on its head. And so I, I, I just think we can do better than we, than we do today. That's a really great point. You served as the top Republican on the House Energy and Commerce Committee for six years. So you really had a front row seat to a lot of innovation that was happening within the Republican Party and how it was kind of shifting ideologically, uh, especially when it comes to issues on climate and clean energy innovation, you know, and you helped spearhead a lot of that. Were there any kind of key moments that you witnessed that really signaled this kind of sea change within the party? Or how did this sort of happen over, over your time? The the irony is Republicans would go about their business and pass laws that really created new opportunities in the energy sector. If you think about whether it was exporting crude oil or LNG development and fracking and all those things we invested in battery research way back when, we were doing a lot of things in, in energy bills. And we just never could take very good credit for it. We're pretty bad at that. And I got tired of, of my Democrat friends speaking on my behalf by saying, oh, we're climate deniers or we, we want the world to burn up 
or whatever they were saying. And so I got together with my colleagues at the time, Fred Upton, who had been my predecessor as chairman, and John Shimkus. And we wrote a, an op-ed piece that said, look, the climate's changing. We contribute. Now let's have a debate about how we fix it. And if you look at what fracking did for the reduction of carbon because of fuel shifting to affordable natural gas versus coal, it was phenomenal. I mean, we probably did more just through that. By the way, American ingenuity and how you go get the fuel. We did more to reduce carbon emissions, I would argue, than probably anybody on the planet as Americans and American companies because we opened that up. It's ironic that the Europeans took a different path, which was to buy into the scare tactics, I would argue, probably pushed by Russia, that fracking is evil and they shouldn't go down that path and just rely on Mother Russia to take care of your energy needs. Well, how the heck's that working out? And then they had the whole anti-nuclear process in place. So they shut down their nuclear, they turned to Russia for their gas, and they thought wind and solar could solve the rest. Those are all pieces of the puzzle, but they built a house of cards that's collapsed around them now with enormously high energy costs. I'm concerned that this administration may be kind of doing that. I mean, they, they give us these head fakes about we're going to develop more energy here, but then they shut down some of the permitting process. And, and you go fist bump the Saudis and get, you know, slapped in the face. So, I mean, the, the, it's just not working. And when you look at what it's going to cost Americans this winter, my gosh, the, the average home heating costs are expected to go up 17% from last year. That's the highest level in a decade. And you look at all of these things that are just going up. I mean, most Americans heat with natural gas and it's supposed to rise 28% from last year. We live in a very complicated and fragile world and we have to make sure that America has reliable, affordable energy. When we don't, we lose jobs. Others pollute a lot more to give us the energy and it, it just doesn't work. I think that's a fantastic point. And, you know, you mentioned the Biden administration's approach and what you said really aligns with what a lot of sources have told me. It seems to be kind of counterintuitive in a, in a sense because he's trying to incentivize more production, but at the same time, it's not something that can happen overnight and they need these investments and investors are not willing to put that money in place when they don't think these projects are really going to pan out or have a long lifespan. In addition, you know, we've seen the really the largest drawdown at the fastest pace of the Strategic Petroleum okay. Reserve, written a lot on that recently. What is your approach, you know, if Biden were to further drain that stockpile, do you think that's a smart move in the shorter or long term? It's political. I mean, if you think about it, I believe that the stockpile, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is maybe at its lowest point in a very long time, if ever, uh, maybe. I, I don't have the data in front of me. If you go back to 84, Ronald Reagan was, was president in 1984, up for re-election. And, and so it was the whole Arab oil embargo period somewhere around in the late 70s, early 80s. I mean, that's why we created it. It really is for an emergency. So what the heck do you do if you drain it down for to bring the price of gas down a few cents a gallon? You've now used it when it was at a high price. How are you going to pay to refill it for when you really have a problem. The problem I would argue today is a political problem based on price, not a supply problem based on a war or some other international situation. And so it, to me, strategic petroleum reserve is just that. Now, 
everybody sells a little of it here or there as a pay for. The key is sell high, buy low. So there was there were periods where we would sell it. And then there were periods where we wanted to fill it because the price of oil was so low. So there's a way to manage it. But I think I think the administration has been uh, way over the top using it politically. And, you know, it's smart. It's like a battery that's fully charged. You just don't want to discharge it and then, you know, go to start your car and it's it's dead. So I, I think that's a problem. Congressman, you had mentioned permitting earlier, and I think we would all agree you were at Energy and Commerce. I was at FERC, an agency that was responsible yep. for evaluating a lot of infrastructure projects that we absolutely need to better align and streamline our permitting process in this country. There was an effort to do that. It kind of fell apart. I read some projections that, you know, of the $369 billion that Congress just spent on the Inflation Reduction Act, 80% of the projected carbon emission reductions won't be realized unless yeah. we dramatically increase the pace at which we cite transmission lines in this country. But historically, the opponents of building out energy infrastructure because it was gas infrastructure are now the proponents of building out transmission to get clean energy onto the grid. Knowing the dynamics in Congress the way you do, if you were still there, how would you kind of revive and and, and advise them on how to move forward on this permitting reform? It's really a good question. You look at back to the Biden administration, the first thing they did was shut down the XL pipeline. And so to your point, even if you go through the permitting process and all, then at the end of that, you get a president that goes, no, we're going a different direction. That is not going to incent big project investors because they're they're going to go, I'm going to go somewhere else. It's a global investment world. They'll go do an investment somewhere else and make money and get a return sooner. I've struggled with this issue of permitting for the entire time I was in the Congress. I had a little town, Mitchell, Oregon, I think spent three and a half years going through a permitting process and an environmental impact process to cite four power poles on Bureau of Land Management land so they could finally get three-phase power into their town. I mean, four power poles, seriously, three and a half years. This is a broken system that can be repaired without reducing the environmental safeguards it was designed to have. You can take care of the environment, but you shouldn't have to take three and a half years to put four four power poles in the ground, for goodness sakes. And so I, I think there's a way to streamline it. Now, you run into a couple of issues right and left. The left that doesn't want projects to go forward knows how to use the NEPA process to tie in knots and litigation, and it can take decades. The right gets pretty agitated about eminent domain because you're putting your project over <clears throat> over their property. And that engenders a, a lot of frustration and anger not handled right. It's an interesting political dilemma in that you get right and left opposition when you go to streamline this if you don't do it correctly. So private property owners need to be acknowledged and part of the process. The public should have a say. But we ought to be able to get to a decision point more rapidly than we do today. You get out here in the great Northwest and we have national forests. Each of them should have a 10-year forest plan. Many of those plans are 10 years out of date because they've been in litigation. They'd stand taller than, than I if you stack the paper up and it gets litigated. So you're, you're, you're supposed to have a 10-year operating plan that's now 20 years old. It just makes no sense. And I can't believe a country that really wants to get things done allows that to continue. So if we're serious about decarbonization, you have to move more rapidly. To your point, Neil, I think it was the Aspen Institute did a bipartisan effort looking at that very issue and came up with a series of recommendations. Jim Coddington and I think maybe Katie McGinty did this project and they, they say you can't meet the goals of the, the administration, the Biden administration and climate, America's climate goals, if you don't streamline permitting. 
So I think you got to pull people together. Joe Manchin tried. Shelley Marcapito has a bill to do it. There are various opportunities out there to get it done. But if we're serious about getting projects built in a timely manner to serve consumers better with more energy, reliably, at lower cost, then Congress has to get after it. I want to pivot a little bit and talk politics. You, know, you were mentioned in the intro, chairman of the NRCC. We are in a political midterm year here uh, heading into the fall elections. What's been really interesting to me is that, you know, Oregon is a state that has taken a little bit of a more progressive swing the last number of years. Oregon looks to be really competitive for Republicans. Can you kind of tell our listeners what you think the driving factors are on the ground that is, that is putting Oregon in play for the GOP? Even now, here in what I lovingly call the People's Republic, where every left-wing progressive idea is in statute rule. Um, what It's been one-party rule. Our last Republican governor left office in January of 1987. Only Washington state's gone longer than Oregon, but that only by two years without a change in party running, running the state from the governor's office. The legislature has been dominated by Democrats with super majorities in the last couple of legislative sessions. So they've had free reign. And then everybody watches the riots in Portland that it seemed to be a nightly show where federal buildings are attacked and Starbucks windows are broken and the homelessness and, and the crime, the sense that you're just not safe and secure in your own community, that it's not safe to let your kids walk to school or go to the neighborhood park without finding needles or bodies or you know, people camped out in homelessness. They liberalized the drug laws here so that the, even the most serious of drugs are now just a misdemeanor, if that, to be used. That's contributed to it. And then they, they're not adequately putting the resources in the community, both in terms of policing and mental health, to deal with the problem that they've created. So that's a, a laundry list of things. But if you ask voters, they're concerned about certainly inflation, the economy, but high on their minds is cost of rent, homelessness in their neighborhood, and crime. So it they, they just said, okay, one party, the Democrats have had had run a show for decades. It, we're willing to try something new. Now, here's how bad it is. Swing voters, I would argue, are fleeing the Democrat Party in Oregon faster than conscripts are fleeing Russia right now. You've got a former Democrat state senator who is a friend of mine, been pretty good on our resource and energy issues, more moderate on, on the social issues. She just left the Democratic Party, Betsy Johnson, just left the Democratic Party this year to run as an independent, non-affiliated candidate for governor. And then you've got the, the very liberal Tina Kotek. She's very articulate, smart, but very liberal. She's running as the Democrat nominee. And Christine Drazen, the former Republican leader of the House, I think she's been in office three or four years. She's running as the Republican nominee. Well, Neil, if, if the roles were reversed and you had a former Republican senator running as an independent and you have a Republican nominee, I think Republicans would be panicked that that is going to split the vote and the Democrat would get through. I think that's what's happening now. You have basically two Democrats, Ron and a Republican. They're splitting the vote. And to my point about swing voters, if the left-wing policies that Tina Kotek and her team have put in place with Kate Brown over the last number of years were that popular, then why is she stuck at 30-some percent of the vote? She's most polls, she's in second place to the Republican, who's at 30-something as well. But if these policies were that popular, I, I would think Tina would be at 45, not 31 or wherever she is. Now, on the congressional side of things, there are two races out here 
that are very much in play. The fifth district with Lori Chavez Dereamer, I think she will become the member of Congress from there. This is the seat that Kurt Schrader was defeated in, in his primary by a, a real lefty that's moved up here from California. And even President Biden's endorsement in the primary did not get Kurt over the top. That seat's in play. And I think Lori Chavez Dereamer will win it, becoming, I think, the first Republican woman and first female Hispanic to be in the in the Congress from Oregon. The other seat, Mike Erickson, they're throwing everything beyond the kitchen sink. I think they've got the roof they're throwing at him now. But I'm told that he's standing up to all of that. And that I think the Cook political report moved that to a toss-up as opposed to what everybody thought would be a, a Democrat seat. So you're seeing some things happen here as a rejection of the status quo, as a rejection of high rent, high inflation, high crime, high homelessness. People are just ready for a change. And we'll see how that plays out. How much are energy issues playing into this dynamic? You mentioned oh. earlier hydro and the and the resources and the tremendous advantage that Oregon has. My understanding is you've got some groups pushing for removal of the uh, four lower Snake River dams, and then that would have a devastating impact on Oregon's economy. Yeah. And I think, in fact, correct me if I'm wrong, but, but I think the CEQ, the White House CEQ, came out with a plan to do just that. And it, it messes up all kinds of things, including irrigation, transportation, and energy on those Snake River dams if you take them out. And by the way, last time I checked, hydro was pretty negative carbon, right? I mean, we're not exactly emitting anything there. So if you want a, a low carbon electricity generator, hydro is pretty hard to beat. So yeah, they're pushing. We're still blessed with pretty affordable power rates, electricity rates compared to the rest of the country. But what we see and why I think consumers are upset is the rest of their energy costs are going up. Natural gas, gas at the service station. I mean, when, when Biden was wanting us all to celebrate the gas had gone down a few cents a gallon, we were still at like four or five bucks a gallon, right? What We're supposed to celebrate that? Are you serious? And now it's turned the corner and gone back up. And there are lots of factors involved. I know that. And they'll point fingers everywhere. But you know, this started before the war in Ukraine started. This started right after the administration switched. A lot of things, a lot of people went, well, we know where this, this administration is going to be headed and they're going to be back to the sort of the Obama way on energy. Now, they've passed a few progressive things that make sense, but I think on, on oil and gas, they're, they're clearly no fans of oil and gas. Now, you've had the opportunity to serve in, in numerous configurations. You've been in the majority with a Republican president. You've been in the majority with a Democratic president. You've been in the minority with a Democratic president. In all likelihood, and your analysis was fantastic, it looks like we're headed for a Republican House majority in 23 that will oversee the final two years of the first term of the Biden administration. In your view, what advice would you give to your former colleagues at Energy and Commerce? What agenda should they pursue? Should it be legislative? Should it be oversight? Should they be laying the groundwork for what a 2024 Republican administration might look like? How would you handle things if you were still on the committee? Well, I, I think you've touched several of them. First, smart oversight. We should always do that regardless of who's in the White House. We're a separate branch of the government. And I think smart oversight over what's worked and not and what the implications of policy decisions are, what's going on in the bureaucracy. I mean, it's a it's a target-rich environment for oversight efforts. And, and Morgan Griffith will likely lead that subcommittee and he'll do a great job. I, I think there's a whole host of issues in the healthcare space 
that need review. What did we get right and what do we get wrong in the Pandemic All-Hazard Preparedness Act that we initially wrote the reauthorization of when I was chairman and then it became law two years later when I was the ranking member. But it was bipartisan and we got all the briefings classified and not. We thought we'd written a pretty good bill for the country. And then we got this pandemic like nothing we'd ever seen before and realized where the shortcomings are. So I think that's an area that needs review as long as well as looking at long COVID patients and what's that what are the implications on the health system going forward. I also think supply chain and supply chain vulnerabilities. As you know, Neil, from your experience at FERC, there are bad actors and state actors out there that would love to do damage to our pipelines and our phone lines and our power lines. They're at it every day through cyber attacks, and perhaps worse. And I think we need to really look at trusted suppliers in our telecom world, and we're doing that, ripping out Huawei equipment and trying to get to uh, safe and secure telecom networks. But I think the same applies for our, our electric grid, our power lines, and our and our pipelines. So there needs to be continuous oversight there going forward and in any legislation as needed. And, and so I think mostly in a split government like we'll have, you can legislate, but it's hard. You can always do oversight and it's important to do and to do correctly. And so I think oversight would be number one, legislation probably number two, but clearly there are issues that, that you have to deal with. And the, and the final piece I'd say, and I I think Kathy Morris Rogers is, by the way, going to make a terrific chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee. And I know part of what she'd like to do is continue the efforts to reauthorize agencies. Some of them have not been up before Congress for reauthorization for decades. I mean, it was 20 years, I think, on the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission. We did that uh, when I was chairman. We did a reauthorization called the Ray Bombs Act, named for my former staff director who tragically passed away. But, you know, I think they need to look at at each of these agencies, get them in a rotation, get them up before Congress and go through the standard reauthorization. It's a lot of work, but it's part of what you're paid to do. And so uh, I think that needs to happen going forward too. Congressman, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your experience with our listeners today. Folks who tune into the podcast regularly know that we like to end with something light about our guests, not necessarily substantive or tied to their work. So for our listeners, what is what is something uh, light and interesting about Congressman Greg Walden uh, that they would find amusing? Well, that's a really good question. I don't know. I love to ski. My wife and I got in quite a bit of that after I retired from Congress. I think we were over 20 days uh, skiing, which was at least double what we'd ever done before. And we have e-bikes. We like to get out. And since this is an electricity sort of related discussion here, we love our e-bikes. And uh, I never have to worry now when I go down a hill about how the heck I'm going to get back up that hill. I just click and, you know, get a little boost. Now, these aren't the full motorcycle type e-bikes you see occasionally. We still have to pedal and work at it, but it's a lot of fun. Well, we're very well sourced here at the uh, Plugged In Podcast. I have been told I should ask you about Crater Lake, that you love talking about Crater Lake. Deepest freshwater lake in, uh, I think, North America, certainly the United States, over 1,900 feet deep. It's the old Mount Mazama volcano that blew out and left behind a huge crater that filled with water. It is some of the freshest water you'll ever find. In fact, it's so clear they call the color of it the Crater Lake Blue because the light goes down so far into the water. It is I think about 8,400 feet high at the top of the rim. You can drive all the way around it and you can hike down a mile or so to the water itself and go out on a tour boat out around the lake. 
hike and get over to Wizard Island and hike up to the top, which we've done. It's uh, one of one of the great, amazing parts of the Northwest. So yeah. It's one of the great examples of just the hidden gems in this beautiful country that not a lot of folks probably know about it. And so for our folks listening, add it to your bucket list, Greater Lake. You know, it, it would be great pump storage for hydro, except it's a national park, but we do have those <laughs> projects in the Northwest too. Well, Congressman Greg Walden, thank you for your service to the country. Thank you for just being a fun and informed guest. Really appreciate you joining the Plugged In Podcast. Hey, Neil, happy to do it. Thanks for your service. And let's keep those electrons going in the right direction. Yes, sir. Thanks so much again for listening to Season 3 of the Plugged In Podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern Time. You can keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and by subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter, written by me, Brianne Depish, and my co-author, Jeremy Beeman. Beeman.